Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. If you head south from Florida, hit Cuba, and then make a left, you'll arrive at an island we're going to talk about today. Haiti has a history that is unique for multiple reasons. If for anything, it was one of the few nations to have a successful slave revolt, resulting in a government ran almost exclusively by those who had been previously without any freedom. To help us learn more about our neighbor whose history is intertwined with America's, is Evelyn Pierre, the executive director and founder of the Haitian Heritage Museum located in Miami, Florida. My first question, I want to give listeners a cursory backdrop of Haitian history because I don't think most of us know much. So what is known about pre-colonial Haiti? What is known about pre-colonial Haiti, of course, you had the Indians there, Mm -hmm. the Arawak Indians and the Taino Indians, and you had a wonderful queen named Queen Anacona. So she was there and the group of Indians, they were ruling the territory. And then, of course, you had Columbus came in. Mm -hmm. So they were living life. They were already there. They were already settled. So when they say Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas, Mm You know, you can't discover something that was already there. Correct. So once the colonials got on there, Columbus got on there, they realized that it was so much gold, rare earth, silver. It was just basically a gold mm-hmm. mine, and that's why he felt like he landed in India. And that's why he gave the name West Indies, thinking it was India. So people were pretty much happy-go-lucky, just doing a lot of the everyday things. Mm-hmm. If you look at some of the, the caves and the walls, that the inscription of the Arawak Indians... They were all, you know, showcasing their daily lifestyle. And people don't know, the Indians, the Arawak Indians, they actually created um, barbecue. It was called babacoa. Really? And people don't know that. It's like an open pit where they actually, because barbecue was founded in Haiti. A lot of people don't know that Well, before it was Haiti. Well, it was Haiti because the Arawak Indians gave it the name IET, meaning mountainous land. So then when colonial came in, they said Hispanola. And they, you know, just gave it a different name. But the Arawaks actually gave the name Haiti, IET. Ah, yeah, okay. mountainous land. So that's a little tidbit about the pre-colonial. Now, when the colonists came in, I know, like in Cuba, the Indians pretty much ended up being wiped out, either sometimes by force, sometimes by disease, and that type of thing. How many of the Haitian Indians survived colonialism? Well, pretty much ninety-eight point one percent of them were of course, annihilated. Mm. And the way that was annihilated is because when Columbus got on the land and he had to go back and report to the queen, he found gold. So they were like, oh my God, gold. So they worked them basically to death. Like they worked them nonstop. Then of course, they certain diseases that were they were not accustomed to came on the land along with the colonizers. So again, you know, scurvy, you know, venereal diseases, because, you know, they basically took over the women, you know, mm-hmm. and different things happened, but they really basically overworked them because they were not used to that. They were just very peaceful people enjoying their lives, mm-hmm. you know, barbecuing right. and doing canoeing and doing the things that, you know, Native Americans do on an island. 
And then you have this new um, group of people come on the island. They thought they were friendly, they were trading, but then when they discovered gold, it was like, you know what? We got to get as much gold as possible and to take it back to Queen Annabelle to get all of the resources so they can like declare it's a um, a territory. So Columbus was working for the Spanish. Yeah. So how long did the Spanish control Haiti? Well, basically they had a treaty that they um, created between... Because not only the Spanish was there, but the French was there and the British as well. Okay. So that's why they call it Hispaniola. And because it was the Spanish name that, you know, outside of, you know, calling it IET from the Arawak Indians, Columbus gave it the name Hispaniola. So that's the entire territory was actually for a brief moment basically ruled by the Spanish. So once the French came on board and the French slaves were there, they had a treaty that they decided, okay, one side is for the Spanish and the other side is for the French. So, of course, the British wanted their, their part as well. So, of course, um, at the time, the, the slaves were, you know, it was the largest territory or revenue-building territory for France. So, France was like, okay, we have to find a way that we have to take over the entire island. So, basically, at that time, you had Toussaint Louverture. He was a young man, and it was Hispaniola. So he was very, um, his slave masters were very, um, I guess, lenient with him, teaching him how to read, actually sent him to school in France to get military training. So that's why he was such a strategist. Mm -hmm. So he was a very, um, I guess, open person in reference to like, hey, I'm for the French, the liberty, egality, you know. So I want to get the whole island to be French. So what he did, he negotiated against the Spanish for the French, and then he was able to get the entire island to be a French colony, even though they had the treaty. But of course, the whole ideology of Europeans at the time was expansionism. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to expand and continue to grow their territory. So that's how they were able to get the entire island to be a French colony because Toussaint Louverture was very strategic in um getting them to, I guess not relinquish, but to getting them to to capture the entire island, if that's making sense. Right, yeah. Okay, so Toussaint L'Ouverture. Yes. Okay, my French is awful. He was a free man when he went to start the revolution in Haiti, is that correct? Well, this is the thing. As the revolution was taking place, it was actually taking place first in Europe and France. Mm -hmm. And basically, they're like, hey, we're fighting for the same freedom and we want freedom, whatever. So we're fighting for freedom here in France. The colonies should also be free. Uh So Napoleon was away still in his conquest, and then the rulers at the time, it was Napoleon, but he was away, and then, you know, the uprising of the French Revolution was happening. So they were like, yes, we decreed that all of the colonies are free. And then as they gave that decree, Toussaint Louverture had rolled up in ranks, so he declared himself governor of Haiti. When Napoleon came back, he's like, what is this? (laughs) Our most revenue-driven colony you guys made it free are you guys insane so he reimposed slavery and a lot of people don't know that just think like 1804 that's when we got our independence but again haiti was a french colony one of the highest yielding revenue for france and 
you know, Napoleon, as a, you know, anybody who's in business, they're not going to let their highest commodity go. So he reestablished slavery. And then this is when Toussaint Louverture got the aha moment because he was very strategic in putting the French against the Spanish, the Spanish against the French and the British. So he basically got everybody kicked off except the French because he really believed in France because they gave freedom for a brief moment, quote unquote. Yeah. So when he realized that it wasn't about the brotherhood in reference to France and the people free. It's really more about they were only interested in slavery and keeping the Africans, the Haitian Africans, down. So that's when he got the aha moment. Like, okay, we need to be strategic and getting them off the island. So then, of course, because he was such a, a statesman, that they were like, okay, well, you know what? We reimpose uh, re slavery, but we want to talk to you and let you know like how we can really free the black people. So he was a compromiser if he thought it would achieve the end goals. Well, no, he was really strategic. strategic. And then because he really was like, okay, he's all about France because it was a French colony, mm -hmm. um, colony, but the Spanish was there. He's like, well, I have my allegiance to France, but let's get the Spanish off, you know, off the island. So he did that. And on that Congress, he realized, like, okay, and then he got his freedom because France was going through their revolution and it was a colony. Haiti was a colony. Mm -hmm. So he was like, okay, I got my freedom. But then Napoleon was like, no, 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 we're not having that. So then he had to second guess himself, like, well, the French people are really not about the black people, the right. Africans. So... We need to continue with what we're doing here on the island. And if I have to go and make a strategic move to gain the Africans their freedom, let me go make that strategic move. And thus, this is where they tricked him. Mm -hmm. So, okay, yeah, we want to talk to you. You guys had something good going on. And I'm paraphrasing it because sure. it wasn't that, you know, simple, <laughs> you know, just for right. the, the audience to understand. Right. But we want to talk to you and really help the people gain mm -hmm. their rights legally. So it sounds to me like uh, he believed in the ideas that the French supposedly had stood for, this brotherhood right. of man, and not unlike how in the United States, mm -hmm. you know, the Declaration of Independence, mm -hmm. you know, Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, they all said, yeah, that's a perfect document, mm -hmm. but we need to live up to it because we, we haven't. Exactly, yeah. and, and that's what it was. So yeah. right after they became, when they contacted Whoever, however, the messenger was like, okay, yeah, we want to talk to the governor of Haiti because he had declared himself the governor of, of Haiti. So he met with the French colonizers and then they tricked him and they arrested him and took him to France and where he died in the, the prison. But they put him in the prison and, of course, being from Africa, mm -hmm. Haiti, and then you go to France where it's cold, he basically froze to death and died from pneumonia. Mm. And that's when the revolution took on another aspect because Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who was next in line, he was, okay, we tried to negotiate with these people. We were in object slavery where they did some really malicious things to us. So if we don't do something, we're going to die. If we do something, we're going to die either way. Right. So either way, it's like there's a point of no return. So it was like he coined a phrase like Kupetet Bulekai. The literal translation is like cut off heads, burn houses. So he was like, look, they came here, overtaken us. 
They worked us to death. They killed us. So now it's death or freedom. Mm -hmm. And this is when it took on a different aspect where Tucson Louverture was more like the negotiator, the strategist yeah. and whatever. He, um, John Jackson were like, no, we're going to just burn everything and kill everything that is not going to allow us to live on our land as right. free men. So, so you get a sense that Toussaint was more for, uh, truly, again, the Brotherhood of Man, where his successor was, no, we got to exterminate our well, enemy. I, I want to say, like, you know, because when you dive into Toussaint, uh -huh. it's like he was a, a military genius. Mm -hmm. Because, again, like, when you look at the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. and you were like, well, how come America was not successful? They were, like, the superpower. Right. And then if you think of, you know, in Vietnam... They were strategists, and when I was reading a book, and I realized that the Vietnam people took the playbook from Toussaint, from Haiti. And mm -hmm. I was like, wow. And you can right. understand it, because it was like very guerrilla warfare, right. ambushing, Wearing. and all that. And that's exactly how Haiti won their war right. against the superpower at that time, which was France. So again, I think really more he was like a strategist and a statesman, mm -hmm. and whereas you know he was willing to negotiate, but not negotiate um, where it just left the people they didn't have sure. like proper rights. He was right. negotiating because he really believed in the understanding of your rights as a human. So Jean Jacques de Saint-Louis was really more like, look, <laughs> we try to negotiate, but these people and look, they they took our leader. And now he's not even here. So I'm going to try a different approach. And we're going to use force because there, where there was force, I'm going to use force too. Right. And that's where he basically put out a, an edict out there just to destroy all people who were not of black origin. Yeah. So he basically like killed all the whites, mm -hmm. all the Caucasian people, just killed them, annihilate them. Right. And actually it was like a 12-year war. And then in 1804, that's when they became successful. And then he declared Haiti as an independent nation. Miss Pierre next tells us about how some of the former slaves actually helped some of the white population. Many of them, their former slave masters even, escaped the oncoming genocide. People who were working, you know, different um, plantations. They were like, oh, well, these people, they weren't brutal to me. They were right. nice or whatever, you know, depending on what that word nice means or whatever. <laughs> so they actually helped them escape, you know. And a lot of the people, you know, of course, they had ships and different things of um, the colonizers. That's where they board their concubines, right. their children, illegitimate children, mm -hmm. the children that they had with different slaves. And they took them and they went to New Orleans. Because remember... The New Orleans, the, um, the Louisiana Territory, that was not the U.S. at the time. It was like a French territory. Right. So that's why you see influx of the culture, the Creole culture mm -hmm. in Louisiana and different areas because the French at that time took their concubines. Right. So Jean-Jacques de Salin didn't make any exceptions, but other people who had, you know, of course, daily relations with other mm -hmm. people, say masters, or, you know, if they weren't like, you know, really dealing with them in a travesty Cru type of way, in a cruel way. manner. Yeah. They were like, okay, well, here's a way of escape. You know, cross over, get to Saint-Domingue. So again, it's all about relationships. Right. But Jean-Jacques something basically had it up to here. Yeah. He was like, enough. We tried to be abiding citizens, or not citizens, but abiding and trying to 
have relations and talk this through, but there, there was no overturn. After they took Tucson, he was like, enough. What was Celine's opinion of mulattoes, as they called them back then? Okay, the mulattoes, they... This is a great question. Let me kind of go back because Toussaint was like, look, when he realized that the French was not about the brotherhood, about the people, and he was able to garnish the support of the mulattoes, like, look, you think you're white, they put you in the house, they give you certain privileges above us, but at the end of the day, we're all black. Uh They don't care about any of us. So what you guys need to do, you guys need to join our forces so we can take care of the main enemy, which is France. Because he was so good a negotiator, putting Spanish against French, French against Spanish, and the British, and he was able to kick the Spanish off and the British and allow France to be those only colonizer on the island. So when he realized that, listen, this is not going to work out in our best interest, he was like, okay, mulattoes, even though we know you have a different skin color of a hue, but they don't like any of us. They want us all to be terminated. And it's just really like a, a mind type of um, servitude type of thing. It's really getting into your mind thinking that you're better than us and you're not. And we're all one the same. So either you guys join us or you guys will be annihilated as well. So many of them joined on. But that problem still plagued Haiti after because even when Dessaline and only Christophe became um, the rulers of Haiti... On the, the south side, um, Alexandre Pétion, he was a mulatto, and he really was more into the French ways and everything. But on the west side of the island, they were like, no, we're really more about our African heritage, and we really don't want any kind of residue of France. That's when they created the, the flag. This is a folklore story. Um, Jean-Jacques Dessalines' um, niece, goddaughter, was Catherine Flon. And Catherine Fon was a mulatto, so she had this long, beautiful, cascading hair. So what they did, they cut the flag, the white part out of the flag, and then they put the red and the blue, which is the blood that was shed, and the blue was the mulatto, so taking out the white altogether. <laughs> and Catherine Fon, with this long, beautiful hair, had the little needle, put the thread as her hair, and sewed the red and the black together. Huh. So it's a beautiful story. Right. We haven't been able to, Confirm you know, it. <laughs> but it's a folklore story. I'm okay, that makes sense. Right. And that's how Toussaint was able to garnish like all of the support of the mulattoes. Okay. Too. Not all, but the majority of them. They're like, okay, well, you know, we're living in this fantasy. We're in the house, like they said, the house slaves, mm-hmm. you know, and they had some kind of right. But at the end of the day, you know, France right. was really not interested in really garnishing the people those rights as mm-hmm. freemen. So Frederick Douglass was, of course, the abolitionist in America Mm -hmm. and uh, eventually got free and became this intellectual powerhouse. And after the Civil War, became ambassador to Haiti. So can you talk about his experience and his relationship with the Haitians? He was an abolitionist. And he was very, um, I guess, well-studied. So he already knew about Haiti before he got to Haiti. And like you were mentioning earlier, like even though his allegiance was to the United States of America, but here's this first black nation free. So he was kind of like torn between his, I guess, his day job and his, um, his passionate job and his real job. So his relationship in Haiti was very 
powerful because again, he just felt like he could create, not create, but um, tweak the things that were not as working properly in Haiti in reference to the government structure. Because again, since Haiti became a free black nation free, a lot of issues came out of that because again, it was like kind of like three different heads living in Haiti. You know, people still wanted to do the French ideology. Some of the, the political class at that time still wanted to infringe. They wanted to kind of like still keep some of that ingrained slavery mentality. Like classism maybe? Yeah, classism for sure. But then again, at the end of the day, because if you live through slavery so long, it's kind of like uh, you don't know how to not be so brutal. Right. You understand what I'm saying? Sure. So again, that had to be unlearned. And again, having a group of people that was very the, the only successful slave revolt at that time, you have a certain level of pride. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you can't get away from that unless you have like an intellect like Frederick Douglass to come in. Very, I don't want to say neutral, but very um, powerful from the U.S., but really trying to implement, like, hey, guys, this is how you can do it and be successful. So there, there was, it wasn't a paradise just yet, so to speak. Right, it wasn't a yet. paradise as of yeah, yet, yeah. but, you know, it was kind of like it was going off of fuel, you know, oh, wow, this is like the first successful black nation mm -hmm. free. You know, we helped Bolivia. Mm -hmm. We helped all these other countries. You know, we only asked, we gave you money. We gave you arms. Even we gave you soldiers. Only thing we want you to do is put the red and the blue together, like recognize our colors in your flag. So at the end of the day, it was like everybody who came to Haiti, like, oh, you were free. Mm -hmm. Whatever, you put your foot on the island, you were free. So again, when Frederick Douglass came, it was kind of like, okay, he was having a movement to bring more African-Americans onto Haiti and really, you know, probably struggle with the fact that, you know, maybe he wanted to stay there permanently. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So again, I think it was a good thing because again, here's the first black ambassador to Haiti and then you have Frederick Douglass, who's an intellect, who has all of the knowledge, who survived slavery in America, but then to go to be the first ambassador to Haiti, the first black ambassador to see this first black nation free, like how were they able to accomplish that? So I think he was really more in awe of Haiti and, of course, wanting to intellectualize Haiti. But Haiti was already full of intellectuals, but again... They always had like, okay, if it's not working, let's just start all over. And, and that's something that I think Haiti continues to suffer with right now. Mm -hmm. Because even though you had the intellectuals like Toussaint Louverture, which actually helped Haiti gain their independence, but they really leaned more towards Jean-Jacques Dessalines because it was like, okay, let's take it into our own hands. And I think that's where I think the, the issue probably lied with Frederick Douglass and Haitians because they were really more like more brutal instead of trying to think of right. things intellectual. I don't know if that's making sense. Yeah, yeah. You know? Your point telephone, c'est mon moyen de corruption. Telephone, tout n'était les tripotages. So, talk about some of your passionate parts of either Haitian individuals or historical events that you would like Americans to know or the world to know? Okay, the historical event that I would like the world to know is Haiti was not really supposed to be um, a democracy. It was actually a kingdom. Mm -hmm. It has their em emblem 
And it's like you, we had a king called King Alan Christoph, and we had a queen. So really, they had really the understanding of a kingdom. And when you think of a kingdom, it's like, you know, everything is ownership, right? And again, you know, the people have to have that mindset of wealth and, you know, learning and culture and all that. And for me, Alan Christoph, outside of Tucson Louverture, I love him a lot. But I think Alan Christoph, he was really into the arts. He was really into creating, making sure that it's a cultured um, group of people. And not only that, um, Haiti's, I guess, capital was actually in the northern part of Haiti. It was in the north where they had the, the capital at one point. And then that area is very green. It's very like, because he had the people like, hey, if the slave masters ever come back, we want to be self-sufficient. So he had them plant trees, grow, you know, fruits, vegetables. So that's the one thing that I think people misunderstand about Haitians. They think they're always asking for a handout. Right. And it's not that. The people are very self-sufficient, very self-supported. It's just like, you know, when people come and, okay, well, we have a ministry that's going to come and bring whatever. And then you have the young millennials that are there, because Haiti population is over 50% under the age of 21. It has a very young population. So when you get that, you understand that what only Christophe has set up, which is to get the people to be self-sufficient, to push the arts, and really understand, like, hey, it's all about communal. It's not about one person. It's about the entire island. And we have to be brothers and sisters to keep the island and help one another. I think that's a fact that people don't realize. They just think, oh, it was just like this poor island. Right. But Haiti, the other fact that I'd like people to know about Haiti, Haiti is really multicultural, you know, in a sense. You know, because, again, not only you have the French influence, you have the Spanish influence, you have the, the Italian influence. The German influence. It's like so many different people were in this island, and you have a mesh of different people. You even have an Asian Pacific influence. So again, I think people when they think of Haiti, they just think it's it's just a black nation. It is a black nation, but it has a lot of different flavors in, incorporated in that. Now, what years were was this Christoph? You said only oh, Christoph. Yeah. What years were was he in power? He was in power like in the eighteen hundreds, the seventeen hundreds, like eighteen right after. Haiti got their independence. Jean-Jacques de Saline was there, but then Henri Christophe came, became the king. Okay. And again, remember I was telling you about the divide. I think he was the king of the south. He was the king of the entire island, but then you have, you know, right. different people who wanted to lead the people a different way. So that was like the main thing about Haiti. The other thing about Haiti is that Margoire was actually invited to the U.S., where he actually met with Richard Nixon was the president at that time. Mm -hmm. And Malgoire was actually, this is historical purposes for me, right. is that um, he was actually on the cover of Time magazine. That's when news was real news, you know, right. and Time magazine was a reputable news sure. source. So that was really incredible to see, and we actually have pictures of that, wow. of him actually in the, um, the House of Congress. Mm -hmm. And then you had the Speaker of the House there, and you had the President, and then you had Maguire, you know, sitting there. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, being able to go to the U.S. to kind of talk about what was going on with Haiti. Mm -hmm. The other um, fact that I really love um, is the Haiti actually gave the winning vote in the United Nations for Israel to become a nation. Oh, wow. A lot of people don't know that. I think that's a real interesting fact because, again, 
you know, when you think of Israel and you think of Haiti, you know, you think of the plights of the Israelis that they went through so much, you know, Haiti as a country was the first black successful slave revolt. You have the Citadel, which is a very, you know, one of the eighth wonders of the world. You have a Citadel, not a building, but there's an area in Israel called the Citadel. I'm like, this is really interesting. So there's a lot of connections with Haiti and um, Israel. And I think giving the winning vote was a, a major thing. Um, for Haiti to be known as that and then Israel. And then, of course, Haiti also helped Simon Bolivar get the, the Spanish out of um, South America. And a lot of people don't know that because of Haiti, they, only, they provided arms, they provided money, they even provided men to go and help Simon Bolivar win their independence for South America. And when he left Haiti, that's when he was able to be successful. Another fact, a historical fact, is the, the Sasson Volontaire, which is the free um, volunteer soldiers. Um, Christophe, the, the, the person that I said I love so much, the king of Haiti, he was 12 years old. He was a drummer boy, and he was actually in Savannah helping the U.S. Revolution fighting against the British. And they were very successful in pushing back the British to actually retreat because they were the free volunteer slaves that came to help the U.S. Wow. So there's a monument right now in Franklin Square um, called the, the Savannah Monument Project where it depicts that whole encounter. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't know that. So when people are like, oh, Haitians, they shouldn't be here. They came on a boat. <laughs> Haitians, you know, help the U.S. in a lot of different ways. Another fact that people don't know, hopefully you know this, is that Chicago was founded by a Haitian man. That I didn't know. I know there's a lot of Haitians there today. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that. His yeah. name was Jean-Baptiste Plendusab. He's actually on a U.S. stamp. Uh -huh. He was a fur trader. He came from the via of Haiti, of course, New Orleans, uh -huh. and then he set up a trading post, and he was the one who settled in Chicago and created and founded Chicago, Jean-Baptiste Plendusab. They have a Dusab Museum there now. It's called the Dusab, and he was the one who founded um, Chicago. So Haitians are as interwoven and intertwined in the culture of America. Mm -hmm. And one last tidbit, I don't know if you want me to continue, no, is no. Plessy versus Ferguson. I don't know if you remember yes. that Supreme Court um, ruling. Plessy, he actually was Haitian. And that was the, the, the Supreme Court ruling where they were trying to figure out how do you say or quantify if someone is black or white. Right. So Plessy was actually, I don't remember the, the exact thing. They were like, oh, no, well, he's three-fourths black or whatever, so he's not really you know, three-fourths black, so he can't be white. Mm -hmm. And then the Supreme Court ruled on that, but he was actually a Haitian man, right. just so happened to be via New Orleans. Right. So, again, there's a lot of tidbits uh -huh. about Haiti that people don't know, and a lot of times people just say it's Hispaniola, uh -huh. And it was already modern-day Haiti, you know what I mean? Right. And I just read a book called Black Fortunes, How Seven African Americans... It's on my wish list on Audible. You have to yeah, read that yeah, book. It's next. Oh, my period. God. Yeah. I read it in, yeah. like, five days. Wow, yeah. And <laughs> it's a great book. Yeah. And for me, it was like they kept referencing Haiti. Mm -hmm. But then they were, they were referencing Haiti, but they're like Hispaniola. It was, oh, well, it was his mother was a French slave. And I'm thinking, like... 
and I'm looking at the, and it's like 1834. 1834, Haiti was already like 30 years into their independence, right? Because they got their independence in 1804. And then the writer, he did not reference Haiti, he just said it was Hispaniola. So then when I went back, I'm like, because you know how when you're reading, you're like, well, yeah. maybe I got my facts wrong or whatever. So when I look back, there's a gentleman in Alabama. It's like the church family. I don't know if you know that. Mm-hmm. The church family, this was the gentleman that his mother was a Haitian woman and his father was a white man. But of course, you know, they had relation. But again, I'm sure it wasn't like she wanted to do it. She got raped, uh-huh. right? So now... This church family has this long lineage. So I'm just researching, I'm reading, and I'm reading it. And until this day, that was one of the people who became a multi-millionaire. And his lineage is actually, his mother was Haitian. Mm-hmm. And if you study it, the church family, they were very influential in Alabama, very influential in politics, very influential in creating such an a awesome lineage and heritage in Alabama. And people don't give it credit that it was a Haitian woman who actually pushed out and birthed this gentleman, even though he looked Caucasian, because of course his um, dad was white, but he continued on his heritage, and nobody gives the connection or tie back to Haiti. So that book, even though the writer did an amazing job, and even some of the abolitionists, they were talking about how, what the, the Haitians did in Haiti, and they were trying to fund certain things i think in um i guess uh in california different areas you know because i read the book a few months ago i don't remember all the details but it really did not give a lot of credence to haiti Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so i think a lot of times people just look at haitian oh it's haitian whatever even even in south florida in um overtown you know i meet people that oh yeah you know we're bahamian but our family really is from haiti but we just go with the bahamians I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And even um, we met um, in this area, Sidney Porte's, I think, grandniece or mm-hmm. nephew. And he was like, yeah, I read my uncle's book. He said his family, his father is from Haiti, Tinti Portier, and yeah. it's a French name. So there's a lot of intertwined, but again, people just choose to use one culture over right. the other because I guess the the negative connotation that the media put out there about Haiti. But if you understand history and culture and you right. do your research, the Haitian people are very smart, right. intelligent, powerful people. And they are one of the countries that actually continue to really adapt and uh, continue to associate with their African Heritage. They really have kept that close because a lot of times, if you put like an African picture from Africa and a Haitian picture from Haiti, you can't even really decipher the difference. Obviously, you're Haitian, right? Yeah, I'm Haitian American, okay. and it's a really interesting story too. Um, I was one of those people. I was actually born in the Bahamas, but I came to the U.S. when I was two. And I really didn't, you know, because I grew up Haitian. I was just like in a Haitian household, I ate Haitian food. I mean, I did have a, a finishing for conch, but I'm like, okay, where did I get that from? But again, you know, that's a dish, of course, but it's really famous for Bahamians. So growing up in South Florida, I had a very poignant um, time where it was an influx of Haitians coming over from Haiti. That was like in the 1980s. And I went to school in Miami Beach, 
And poor thing. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was Jewish. I'm like, Mom, I'm going to bar mitzvahs. I'm like, all the holidays. It's like, she's like, no, we're Haitian. I'm like, oh, okay. We might yeah. be the lost tribe of Judah or something. <laughs> right. So the influence of Haitian, they were coming over. And I was just so happy because I'm, oh, my God, my people. So uh-huh. then, you know, I'll go and I'll talk my Kringlish over. And they're looking at me like, who is this lady? Like, uh-huh. who is this chick? So they wouldn't really commune with me. And then I wasn't really African-American enough to be with the African-American uh-huh. kids. So I really ended up hanging out with the Jewish kids. Uh-huh. So growing up there, and I was like, gosh, I have to really find out who I really am. So I got into an HBCU, which was Howard University. And of course, you know, Frederick Douglass, uh-huh. all, everybody who was anybody in the movement all went through Howard University, right? So I get there, and I go to the Moral and Springer Library. And they have a book casing of everything Haiti. And I was just like, this must be a really important island. Because again, when you're talking to your parents, you're like, oh, tell me about this, tell me about this. Even though I read every book that you can imagine. Oh, whatever, we was free. I just know, you know, when America was going through their thing, I was living in Haiti. I was a free lady. And I was like, okay, can you give me a little bit more? So when I saw that, I was like, wow, this is so amazing. I have to really study more about Haiti for myself. So, of course, my minor, my major was political science, and my minor was focused on Latin America and the Caribbean. I was a history minor. So all of my papers, we had to do a 30-page paper every 30 days for my history class. So I basically lived in Library of Congress. Uh-huh. And, of course, as a historian or a history person, that you're trying to find the facts. So you get the people's information, you get the contrary information and then you get the neutral person because you got to get the full story so really what i learned was that you really couldn't get like a not a a, an objective view of what took place in haiti because at the time the tone and all the writers at the time they were really looking at the people like all these people they're not sophisticated you know they threw mangoes avocado machetes and it was still like are you or like object? This is not an objective version because it's like the objective version and the French version was just the same. So you really, I couldn't really get like the real neutral information about how Haiti was able to accomplish what they did. So that's when I realized that history is his story. Uh-huh. So whoever is the ruling party at that time, uh-huh. they can manipulate history to represent what they want to tell and that's when I was like I had that really early on but still I wasn't really developed as a historian because you're just like oh maybe this was like a miss for a whole century but somebody's gonna tell the right story and then that's when I kind of realized and understood like hey when you're looking for historical information you have to really kind of go to the area because it's in the Library of Congress that doesn't mean that is the correct sure. version. Right. And that was really hard pill for me to swallow because, you know, you're like, oh, my God, it's the Library of yeah. Congress. They have everything there. When you realize, like, okay, why do when people are going on their conquest, they go in, they mm. take all the books, they take the artwork, yeah. you know, they take the women, you know, and yeah. you're like, and you're like, well, why do they do that? You just think, okay, it's just a whole lot of testosterone going on. Yeah. But it's not that. It's really to rewrite and retell the story. And then when you realize what or how powerful the continent of Africa is, a lot of everything came from there, you know, from the science, the math, and everything was there done there first. But if you want to 
subject the people so they won't think that, hey, I'm a king or I'm a queen. I come yeah. from greatness. I come from a great lineage. Then you kind of push that narrative that you want mm -hmm. them to believe. And then they start believing in that. And then they start acting it out. Right. You know what I'm saying? So for me, that was like my journey. And then when I had that aha moment, you know, I didn't see my business partner for a very long time. We kind of grew up together in, um, in the neighborhood. And that's when I was living in L.A. I was like, okay, I cannot because I was working in the entertainment industry. Wow. And, you know, I was an agent assistant. You know, I went through the, 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 the mail room. I did all of those things within a month. And it was just so shallow. I was mm -hmm. like, it got to be more to life than just doing this. <laughs> And granted, that's what I wanted to do as a child, you know, cut out all the, the National Enquirer pictures of mm -hmm. all the celebrities. I'm, oh, I'm going to meet these people one day, whatever, whatever. So when I get there and I do this, you know, working at MTV, working at APA, working at CAA, William Morrison, and it was just like, it was not fulfilling. I'm like, I got to do something more. And this is when I moved back from LA, came here, met with Sir Tavantino for 15 years, and then I was like, you know what? I want to do the Haitian Heritage Museum. And he's like, oh my God, you don't know what you just said. This is like a major um, idea. So then, of course, I'm like, let me research first and see if there's another museum. Research, there was like no other museum in the world outside of Haiti that's dedicated wow. solely for Haitian people. So I was like, well, I guess this is what we're supposed to do. So then, you know, connected with him, childhood friend, and then we just kind of research, 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 you know, research on who are the people that would want to be a part of something like this, who would want to, you know, donate their time, their money, their collection, you know, you have to do all of that. So we kind of researched for like a good six months, and then we put out the product, and then we never turned back. So that's how we kind of got started. And it was really like a dream come true because, you know, where we are today, this is actually Little Haiti. Well, it used to be Little Haiti because right. gentrification happened. And something happened right down the street. I remember my mom told me to go. It was like a Winn-Dixie on 54th Street. And then she was like, hey, you know, go buy. That's when plantains was like a dollar, 12 for a dollar, I think. So go buy some plantains for a dollar, you know. And I lived on 52nd Street, 54 and 52nd, not too far. So I walked. And then I went to pay the plantains. And then it's like this big commotion happened. And I was like, well, what's going on? And I'm young. I'm like 12 years old. And I'm like, what's going on? And then I just saw, like, people spraying Haitians. And it was traumatizing to me. Like, when I say spraying, like, like a air freshener. Like, you Haitian, go back to Haiti. Really? You are, like, you don't smell good. It was just like, Man. and I was like, what is this? So then it really traumatized me. And then I don't even think I told my parents. I was just like, I was still trying to dissect it myself. And she was like, well, what took you so long? And I was mm -hmm. just, something happened. And I think that stuck with me. And then that was something that I, I said to myself internally. Mm -hmm. That I want to be in a place where I can help the Haitian people. Mm -hmm. Then I said a prayer to God. I'm like, God, give me an idea that's going to glorify your name and help the Haitian people. Mm -hmm. And then that's how I got the idea of the Haitian Heritage Museum. And I just feel like it's really a life mission. You know, like how you said you went to China and the guy was like, hey, you need a report on whatever. And right. it's a life mission 
to not only allow people to know who they are, because once you know who you are, then you're able to maneuver to your purpose, mm -hmm. but then give them a platform where they're not starting at a disadvantage, but at an advantage, so now they can continue moving forward to the next and the next level because they're already, they have it inside of them, but they don't know it because of the conditioning, because of the narrative. You know, if you turn on the TV and you put Haiti, only narrative you're going to see is object poverty, the earthquake, earthquake yeah. you know, and it's like hurricanes, whatever, but it's like this. And Wyclef Jean. Wyclef Jean. <laughs> I don't know about that anymore because we had a group of students here, high school students from Broward, and we were like, you guys know who Wyclef is? They're like, who is that? I was like, oh my God, can I revoke yeah. the Haitian card? It's showing my age. Yeah, but yeah. no. But it was just really interesting. So at the end of the day, I just think we just have to do a reconditioning. Mm -hmm. And it's there because the information is there. I'm not saying Google. You know, I love Google for like surface information. But you really have to go. And even me, I went to Library of Congress and I was like, wow, this is not objective. It's really subjective mm -hmm. information. But you really have to get those old books, like mm -hmm. read different books because the information is in there so you can get an understanding of who you are. But I think people are starting to wake up. And I think people are starting to understand it's not Haitian, it's not Jamaicans, it's not African Americans. We all came from Africa and we all... I guess got the short end of the stick and now we're really understanding that we have a story to tell and is more intertwined than we think mm -hmm. or than they led us to believe. So I think that's the opening and the move to the opening and the understanding of where the camaraderie is coming together. And I've never seen that for so long because again, growing up in South Florida, it was like a negative thing when you say I'm Haitian. They're like, Oh, you Haitian, they were like they kinda like wow. cursed you. And then the African Americans like go back to Haiti. You're like, okay, do you know that we <laughs> were the first black nation? So it was like a lot of education needed to happen. And now I think people are understanding there's a lot of cross pollination was already taking place, and we're just stronger together. If folks want to get a hold of you, how can they go about doing that? Okay, well, we have all these wonderful social media handles on Twitter. You can go to Haitian Museum. On Facebook and Instagram is Haitian Heritage Museum. Okay. And then we're here at 4141 Northeast 2nd Avenue, Miami, Florida, in the design district formerly known as Little Haiti. I haunt MCs like Mephistopheles, yeah. bringing swords adamically. Secret Service keep a close watch as if my name was Kennedy. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, a Pocket, and a Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. Another MC loses life tonight.